This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, John. Hi, I'm John, compulsive overeater. Among many other things. I have a very soft spot in my heart for this meeting because I I was pretty much involved with this for about two and a half years. And and I remember a number of times, and I know Walter and Mickey do, where uh, uh, the uh, speaker came sliding in like literally as we were ready to start the meeting. I I remember Jerry came up from San Diego and literally she said, you you didn't want to see how we drove to get up here because it would not have been good representation of the program. But... uh, I, I can tell you, I came back, I was in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico at the World Service Conference of OA, and I had a, a girl come up and say, you're John from L.A., right? And I go, yeah. He says, will you please thank the people in L.A. Uh, I'm from Great Britain, and everybody in Great Britain listens to these meetings on a regular basis. And uh, it's good to know that all the service is being used everywhere. This is the podcast that's listened to that, that's recorded at this meeting goes out everywhere. But way more important than that is I had two and a half years, probably, of graduate school 12-step program because we had, you know, and you remember we had people with 10, 15, 20, 25 years on a regular basis, and not that that the number uh, of years alone is an indicator, but these people, what it also told me is these people had gotten through everything life had to throw at them for the last 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and they, they still kept coming back, and they were abstinent, and they could figure out how to do the things that it took me years to figure out how to do without eating, you know, and they were happy. Oh, almost every one of these people are, uh, you know, is a perfect example of this program, was happy, was, was leading a good life, was, was you know, content. And, and that's what I wanted desperately when I came up. Let me just say, I'll give you some, some statistics. I've been coming for about 27 and a half years. I'm 27 and a half years sober in another program. I, I've been coming to OA for that long, and I have about 14 years of, of OA, of abstinence, the way I would consider it. And that gap, of course, is an interesting story in itself as to the two different things. But I've also been, you know, a member of a couple other programs uh, having to do with you know, my family relations and uh, how I got here. I believe I've had this disease since as far back as I can remember in one form or another. I think this disease has different, (laughs) you know, different little tentacles that come out, you know, whether it's in drinking or it's in eating or it's in spending or it's in any one of those things that there's a 12-step program for. The bottom line on it was I had no clue of how to deal with my emotions. I had no idea how to live without having something. And it came from a very early age when when I, I had two parents who divorced at a very early age and they were both alcoholics. 
they had no idea how to deal with emotions themselves. You know, I mean, we would talk all the time, and when all the talks were about, you know, about baseball, about the politics, they were about this, but never about how they felt about anything. Nobody ever said, gee, I'm feeling bad, or gee, I'm having this, you know. What we got a lot was, it's stupid to feel that way. And at some point or another, all of these things that were said, you know, it was like the baton was handed to me in the relay race, and then I took it and ran with it long after I was out of the house. It's stupid to feel that way. The, the other thing is when you come from parents who have any number of addictions, you know, they don't say things to you verbally, but you watch as a kid what they do, and you absorb it. And if you hear your parents saying, they're upset, and they go, I need a, and fill in the blank, I need a pill, I need a drink, I need a cigarette, I need a this, you get the idea as a kid that if you don't like how you're feeling in here, there's something out there that you can put in here that will make you feel better, you know. And at a very early age for me, that was food. You know, I always joke, I said I got into food at an early age because they hadn't invented crack yet. <laughs> you know, not that I would have, I was never a druggie really, but I just wanted to feel better and food did that for me. And, and, and at a very early age. And of course, then it, 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 in a lot of ways it comp- compounded my problems because I was the, the little fat kid, and, and the guy who was the first male member of OA, this guy named A.G., he passed away a couple of years ago, and he used to say, there's no hell on earth like being a fat kid, and I can tell you, I've been a fat kid, I've been a fat adult, fat kid is brutal, because, you know, you'll get little snippy remarks as an adult, but fat kids, they're just, boom, they get right between the eyes and all that. And then I was also what's known as a gifted child, meaning I was smarter than a lot of the other kids. And the trouble was I also couldn't see, because I felt like such a little piece of shit about how I was in here and about my weight, I wanted, I grabbed for any little thread of self-esteem I could. So because I was smart, I made sure I let every one of you know just how smart I was. From the earliest age to up until about a couple years in the program when I realized that's not really cool. <laughs> but the other thing it did was it it just alienated me that much more from the other kids, you know. And and I'm just now I'm this just I'm an alien. I and, and I remember it's like program and I would hear people say it in program they felt like if they were at a party with a hundred people, they were like a different they were one different species in that in that room, you know, and that's the way I felt most of the time growing up. And I ate to soothe this horrendous childhood. It really was. It was a pretty, pretty uh, god-awful childhood. And th- it was the only thing that soothed me. And I moved. The other thing that happened is, is I was with an alcoholic mother who did what's called geographic cures. So we were moving. I remember I was in an Al-Anon meeting once and somebody said, well, you know, I moved like six times by the time I got in the sixth grade. I said, I moved at least six times in the sixth grade. <laughs> and I, you know, but, so what did I bring with me that was, and, and there was only one thing. It was that the 7-Eleven or the, you know, whatever the thing. There was always a little place to go down and take any bit of money I had and take something to feel better. But at the same time, hating how I looked, how hating how I felt about myself, I just was, you know, I just couldn't stand how I was. And yet I had no idea. You know, I had, there was also part of me that just didn't understand why, you know, I, I, I could handle so many other things. I'll just sort of fast forward. I just was all the way through high school. I didn't go to the prom. I didn't date. I was the little nerd and uh, the techie kid. At the end of the the summer after high school, I found alcohol. And it was an an amazing thing because all up until then, I had. it wasn't like I hadn't tried anything to lose weight. I was on every diet there was. I had been in Weight Watchers at 13. I was the only 
male, 13-year-old, uh, I think I was the only one under 40 in, in that Weight Watchers meeting in Nourishell, New York, and I don't even want to mention what year. Uh, I did try everything, and I used to say when I first came to the program, none of the diets worked, and I realized, no, they absolutely did. Every one of the diets worked once. Because it was new, it was different, I just said, okay, tell me what to do, and I followed it. The trouble was, is the second time, I had too much knowledge, and then it would fall apart, you know. So, I had never been able to keep any weight off, and at the end of high school, I found alcohol. I had deliberately stayed away from it, because I had, you know, one of the things about being a little brainiac kid is you read articles about alcoholism, and you go, oh, gee, if you have two parents who are alcoholics, you're a setup to become an alcoholic yourself. So, I remember saying, oh, I'm not going to drink. Well... You know, being being an 18, 19-year-old boy who wanted to meet women and who yet was terrified of them. I had no sisters or anything like that. I don't know if you guys remember Cheers, but Cliff Clavin used to, like, if he met a woman, he would just, uh, 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 I remember it was one episode where he actually had hysterical blindness, and I, that was about the only thing I didn't have, but I would have. But, you know, you give me a couple of shots of that liquid sugar, and all of a sudden, I'm James Bond, you know, and uh, all that. And I fell in love with immediately for that reason, not for the taste, not for anything else other than for a brief couple of minutes, I didn't feel like a piece of shit, you know. And so, immediately, I went from a, being a compulsive eater <laughs> to an alcoholic. I always joke, I, I simply substituted the form in which I took my sugar, and I, I was now taking it in the liquid form. And then I lost weight for the first time in my life, and I lost it the only way I knew how to lose weight, and that was to not eat. I would not eat literally for like a week at a time. I got into compulsive exercise. I would exercise until I passed out along the side of the road, you know, because that's all I knew how to do. And somewhere in there, I knew there was off and there was on when it came to food. And all I could do was have a duty cycle for my my food and and say off as long as I could and then on. And if I did that enough, my weight would come down, and it did. And I got down to a a, uh, weight for about a half a second, but by then the alcohol had taken over, uh, and I was off to the races with that. And and I I always say thank God. I say thank God for two things. Thank God I was an alcoholic, and thank God for food, because food kept me from blowing my brains out. In other words, there's something to be said for it did something or we wouldn't have done it. We weren't nuts. We weren't crazy. It obviously accomplished something. It did for me. And and then, but thank God for alcohol because, I'll take a second. When I'm over in that other program and I mentioned I'm, a, I'm in the overeaters, you know, sometimes they get poo-pooed. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, you eat again. What are they going to find you in the, in, in, uh, you know, in the gutter with a bag full of Twinkies or, you know, things like that. And I always like to tell them that I've buried two sponsees in OA. I haven't buried any in AA. I've buried two sponsees in OA. One was, uh, they found dead, you know, literally having a heart attack in front of his TV with all of his binge foods around. And the other was a guy named Jim B. who was back in Connecticut where I was, and he died in a fire. And he was 500 pounds, and he couldn't get out. And, you know... When I ever thought about, oh, if I'm going to die, I'll have a heart attack, I'll have a stroke, I'll have it, it never dawned on me. You know, there's occasionally, it doesn't happen very often in life, but you have to move fast. And he couldn't, and he's dead. And I mention him more to just sort of say, I, I know there, but for the grace of God. Because Jim and I were absolute doppelgangers mentally. We had the same sharp, you know, we were, he was really smart, he was sharp, he was funny. And, and I remember saying to him, the only difference between you and me is I had alcohol first, and he had never had alcohol. And I said, if there's one good thing to be said about drugs and alcohol, it slams you face down into the pavement and then pulls up your bloody face and says, okay, get it? (laughs) You have no control over this. 
And that's the trouble, is that I don't think it ever gets said enough in these rooms. Figures want to get up and be enthusiastic and all. But I just like to say every once in a while, this is hard. <laughs> you know, it's not hard day in and day out, but especially when you come in, especially when you're trying to get abstinent, that we are addicted to a substance we have to take in our body. And, you know, when people in AA kid me, I go, yeah, well, go, go have one shot of Jack Daniels for breakfast. And go have one shot of Jack Daniels for lunch, and have one shot of Jack Daniels for dinner. And then all of a sudden they go, ooh, they get it, the light goes off. But it's amazing how they don't. Even And you would think people who, who are in a 12-step program would get it, and they still don't, most of them. And this is hard because, uh, on so many levels, because, you know, even the worst person who got into drinking and drugs in his teens, food's been around for us since day one. It's mother, it's nurture, it's so many things, and it's so wrapped up in, in, in me, and it was so wrapped up in me, and that it's the last, it, for a lot of people, it's one of the last ones to go, and when you're left with nothing but that, wow, now you've got to just deal with life, you know? I remember saying to Jim, I, I said, if I hadn't found alcohol and had that first, I don't think I could have done it, because one of the problems with this disease is if you're really smart, you keep moving the goalposts. You keep saying, okay, well, if I ever get to 200, you know, that, yeah, no. Well, if I ever get to 225. And I remember saying to Jim one time, he was, he was well over 500 pounds. We used to have to go weigh him in his 4x4, his four four, and then he would get out of the 4x4, four four, and we would subtract one from the other, and that's how we knew what he weighed. And I remember I said to him, if I told you in college you were going to be 500 pounds, you'd tell me I was nuts. Because the idea of being 200 and then saying, well, I'm never going to get to 500, and yeah, but 2 to 225? 225 to 235, too far, you know, and that's what happens. And that's the problem with this disease, is this disease, for us, makes us uncomfortable enough to know we have to change, but very often not uncomfortable enough to be willing to go to any lengths to change. And that's what makes it doubly hard. And it's also socially acceptable. You don't turn on a lot of TV and see, wow, go drink and have a lot to drink. But we turn on commercial after commercial, and we see other people doing what we can't do, you know. And, I mean, I joke. I, I, I go out with people who will have a, a, you know, get a little thin slice of something, eat half of them, go, oh, it's just too rich. I can't eat it. You know, I don't understand too rich in any definition of that phrase, you know. Um... <laughs> But that's not me, and I'm not wired that way. And what makes it hard is I always use the analogy of the boiled frog. You know, there's an old scientific axiom that you can take a live frog and bring it toward a pot of boiling water, and frogs are not dumb. It, it senses you're about to put it in boiling water, and it starts to thrash. It wants to get away. But you can take that same frog and put it in a pot of room temperature water and slowly bring it up, and that frog will never jump out. It'll die in that pot. If you think about it, that's the perfect analogy for this disease. The temperature keeps going up, but we keep accepting more and more of what was previously unacceptable. And all of a sudden, you know, okay, okay, so I'm this way. Okay, I'm not going to do this. And Jim had all of these things. I mean, he was a brilliant guy, and he had things to help him pick up his pants and things to do this. And I'm like, I remember saying, you're so smart. Yet that's it. He had a disease, and it took me years, you know. I've been around for 27 years. I must have gotten 15 years under my belt before it really hit me on a gut level. This is a disease. So I would say the words over and over because you learn them really quickly. Oh, yes, yeah, a disease, it's a disease, it's a disease. In the back of my head, there was a little voice going, if you guys want to call it a disease and it makes you happy and you feel a little better about yourself, fine. We all know what's really going on. But I, uh, it took a while to get. You know, there are certain things about diseases 
like, first of all, none of us asked for this, I don't think. <laughs> you know, I didn't wake up one day and say, gee, I'm gonna, I want to have to think about what a lot of people don't ever have to think about for the rest of my life. I could do it a day at a time, but I'm going to have to do that. And the other thing is, it has the same symptoms. I can go to Serenity Sunday, and I can hear a woman from Compton get up and tell her story. And then I can get, next week I'll hear a guy from Bel Air get up and tell the story. And it's the same damn story. Yeah, the little details are changed, but how they feel, how, how it affected them, and, and that, the, the frustration, it was all there. And that's where it dawned on me, wow, this really is a disease. And I still have to take responsibility for treating my disease just as if I was diabetic. But I, I, diabetics don't sit there and go, oh, I'm a piece of shit for having diabetes. Oh, or, you know, or, oh, my God, I can't believe I have cancer. I'm just such an idiot for having cancer. You know, we get that with other things. And it took a long time for me to get, but it really helped in terms of taking this moral thing away. And it took years of program to get that. The other thing that happened is, so I ended up finding AA, and, and, and I have to tell the story. I know this is OA, but I found a higher power first there, and so I have to mention that. I came in an absolute rabid atheist. I wanted nothing to do with God, and I would go to the, I would go to the meetings, and, and, and I kept, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take, and the guy who was my first sponsor, I remember we were putting away chairs at the end of a meeting, and, and we had these, these 12 and 12, and they used to be on uh, little window shade things at the club I was at. And, and he was saying, and I'm saying, I can't be part of a religious program. And he said, it's not, it's a spiritual program. And I'm going, look, look, right there, see, it says God, it says God there and there. And, and, and he said the most brilliant thing that made me get it, he said, okay, leave it out. And it's like one of those things, you know, I, I joke that, like, when, you know, you can get a robot in a loop in a science fiction movie. Well, it's like, oh, it was so blazingly simple. I went, what? He says, right now, your disease is looking for any reason to walk out that door. You know, and what could be better than to think that this, this, this cult is going to somehow snare you in? And, and it was a brilliant thing to say. He says, we're never going to make you believe anything. If you want to go and spend the rest of your life as an atheist in program, that's fine. Just do the work I want you to do. And I said, okay. And by putting it that way, because I was so paranoid and I was so, you know, whatever. If the, I've, heard, I've heard other people tell newcomers, well, just keep coming. You'll get it. There would have been a part of me that would have said, oh, my God, the cult is going to get me, and I would have run just as fast out the door. But because he said, you don't have to believe anything, it allowed the door to crack a little. And I could start to think about what I believe, you know. I, I would come to him with, um, you know, how can it be a God and there's a Holocaust? How can it be a God and there's this and that, you know. And I remember one day he said to me, okay, you have an idea what you think you're a, a God. If you were going to design a God, could you design a God? And I said, I think I could. He says, all right, well, I'm going to give you a little summary. I want you to go home and write about that. And so I went and I wrote, you know, the things that I felt, you know, you know, you know, universal, a, a thing of universal love and a this and a that. None of the punitive, rule-making stuff that I got from the religion in my birth, which, by the way, was not, I can look back now and go, part of this was that my mother used to send me to Sunday school and wouldn't have anything to do with it. So anything I got from the religion in my birth, I got from the viewpoint of an eight-year-old, Right. But I came back with this whole thing of, well, I think a God would have this, and a God would do this, and it would be universal. And he looked, and he says, okay, well, there's your higher power, okay? This is what you can believe in. And all of a sudden, I got that I don't have to take anybody's concept of a higher power other than what will make me feel okay. You know, it doesn't have to. I mean, you've got to realize, I am the descendant of two lines of Irish, nasty Irish alcoholics, okay? So the idea of a male god just doesn't work for me because all I can imagine is, you know, some drunk guy. And I want, and so 
I had to find something that would work for me, and, and today I do. And it's not even, it's funny, the longer I'm around, when I first came in, I had to figure out, I want to figure out my higher power. Now I'm like, you know what, I don't have to figure out my higher power anymore. Um, it's just more, you know, and the other great line I heard from the other program is, the only thing I understand about God is you ain't it, you know. And I didn't psychotically think I was God, but I took so much responsibility for things I didn't have to. And today, I help my sponsees, if they stay abstinent, that's, that's them and God. I'm not, I can't get them abstinent, I can't keep them abstinent, and I can't help, or any of these things, you know. I, I just went to visit my brother, and my brother is uh, seven years older than me, and he's dying of cancer. He's got pancreatic cancer, and he's fine with it, but, you know, there's a part of me that, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm the caretaker personality, you know, I'm the caretaker child alcoholic who wants to fix everybody and everything, and there's nothing to fix here, you know, and acceptance is the answer, and it took me years to get that. The idea that there is a higher power, it's not me, and all I have to do is just sort of get in line with it. You know, in, in the 12 steps, the only place it talks about prayer is, is praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. I used to think of God like, like Santa Claus. I got this list, okay? And if you give me everything on this list, then I'll believe in you, you know? Instead of realizing, you know, maybe I don't know. And I don't even pray for people anymore because there's a certain ego in saying, well, you know, so-and-so needs a job, and she keeps talking about it. I'm going to pray that she get that job. She just should mention at the meeting she's up for. Well, that job may be the worst job in the world for her, and she may get it and not get the next job that was going to come right after it. You know, so now I go, you know, thy will be done. May, you know, and, and the idea that I, I can get that, you know. And it's so funny because my mother passed away a couple of years ago, and um, she stopped drinking. Uh, I wouldn't exactly call it sober, but she stopped drinking. And... She, you know, went back to the church of our, our, uh, you know, where I was born, and she kept talking about God and this and that. And I try and get her to come out here, and she goes, "I'm afraid to fly." And I'd be like, "Mom, you know, if you believe in a God," and I remember one day she said, "Well, so do you believe because you fly so much? You believe God won't have you die in a plane crash?" I said, "No, I, I live next to Santa Monica Airport. If God wants me to die in a plane crash, I could be sleeping in bed, and the plane will meet me." Okay, and. The thing about it is, once I got a, a belief in a higher power, it really helped. Because you get in one program, you always hear about others, and that's, that's how I found out about OA. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. Of course, that's what I needed, and I came to OA, and I went through two phases in OA. I went through OA, and then I went to another 12-step program that was a lot more rigid, it had more rules, and then I came back to OA. But i got to tell you, I was in two different OAs along the way. The one I was in for the first, say, seven years or so I was in, it was a place to lose weight. It was a place to be in for fellowship, to come, and it was a place to come and talk about myself. It was like a cheap group therapy. I look back at it now, I couldn't see that. And I used to, and, and I was back east, and then I moved out here, and I was, I had been married the, uh, the first time, and, and I came out here, and I really told, my, my program totally fell apart after I moved out here. But the idea of program was, wow, you know, you come and you talk, and we were young, and we were hip-slicking cool. And then they would have these, these, you'd see these people who would talk about this book, this big book thing. God, if I had to hear him talk about the big book one more goddamn time, you know, oh man, there's so much more to it. It's about going out after the meeting, and it's about calling each other constantly, and you know, and I, I, that's what I thought the program was about. Well, my meaning, my program just kept falling. I had gotten abstinent. I had lost all my weight like a second. That's the other thing. I went through the one time in my life where I actually was probably anorexic was when I first came into OA because I lost my weight like real. I've got, I kill for that metabolism now, by the way. I was 26, 27 years old. 
I had the metabolism of like a hummingbird, so I like lost the weight in like a minute and a half. And the trouble was, I had all these ideas from having been a fat kid my whole life. When I get to go away, you know, it's like every time I would say it, it would be like almost like one of those things in the movies where you could hear the choir going, go away, you know, that everything was going to change and I was going to walk and I was going to be self-confident and women were going to be clawing at my ankles as I walked down the street and... And the damnedest thing happened when I got to the number I called goal weight is nothing. I got to my goal weight and nothing changed and I didn't feel any better. And so I remember thinking, well, maybe that's not the right weight. There must be another five pounds. And I lost another five pounds and I still felt like a piece of shit. And so then I lost another five pounds. And then, you know, you can only do that so long. And then I, I started slipping and sliding. But what I realized when looking back on it is because I didn't like myself at all at this weight, there was not going to be any number on a scale that was going to change that. And that it's an inside job, and I had to start learning that. It doesn't mean that I don't want to do the right stuff and do the things, and I know, you know, I'll hear people every once in a while, well, I, I binged again last night, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And then the two, two meetings later, well, I binged again, but I'm not going to beat myself up. And what I had to start realizing is binging is beating myself up, and I had to start seeing it that way. But I was on that slip and slide and slip and slide, and, and it was just so, it was so exasperating because I was leading meetings, I was a delegate, I was sponsoring, I had a sponsor, and I remember I was the secretary of, of artists and absence, and I would leave the meeting and stop at the donut shop on the way home. And I would be, you know, after I left the donut shop, I'm like, why am I doing this? It's not like I'm sentenced to OA. You know, over in AA, you actually have to get court card signed sometimes. I didn't have to stay here, yet I was, you know, I couldn't get what a disease it was. So I ended up going over to that other 12-step program for a number of years because I, and it was exactly what I needed because I, I was on this cycle of I, I'd start thinking about going out and, and then I would go out and then I would, I would gain, you know, I'd gain a bunch of weight and then I'd be thinking about, I gotta get back, I gotta get back and then I'd get back and then I'd, I'd, I'd you know, I'd get a new sponsor and I'd do this and I'd do that and I'd lose the weight and just about the time I lost all the weight they got and they got quiet again, I'd start the whole cycle all over again and, I did this for a while, and, and, I, and so I went to this other program, and I remember saying, I'm going to have to get into therapy, because I know I'm really making a commitment. The food is going to stay down, and the shit's going to hit the fan. I don't know what it is, but I know there's some shit out there, and it's going to hit the fan. And I started going to therapy, and here I was going maybe 15-plus years in program, and, and I knew a lot about all this stuff, and I went to therapy, and what came out when the food stayed down long enough, all of a sudden one day, oh, my God, I'm in a marriage I don't want to be in. And I am a people pleaser. I am that caretaker personality. And to have to say to somebody who loves me, I don't want to be in this marriage. I would rather, you know, jab sharp sticks in my eyes than to have to do that. And that's what it was about. I never have to look at that if I can keep wheeling this big thing of food between me and that. And, and so that's what it was all about. And I love that phrase. They say, you want to find out what you're eating about, stop eating. You know, and it's really true because then it'll come up. And the thing is, you have to be willing, you have to be willing to go along for the ride, strap yourself in and, and you know, not say, well, I don't like where this is going, because that's where it's supposed to go. And um, it was it was just such an odd thing to realize that. And so I stayed in that program for a number of years, and I was really rigid in the absence, but it was really all about the weight, and it was about that, and doing things, and... What I started, and then I got involved in some other programs where I got to look at how I was then starting to use that program as a way to beat myself up. 
again, it was still, oh, there's a number on a scale, or there's how I'm eating perfectly, and if I'm doing that, I'm good, and if I'm not, I'm not, and all that stuff. And and, I, and the other thing that started to happen is I really started to get into this book, you know, and, and I really started to read the book and really understand it. You know, for me, it was like, oh, these people are just like those, those you know, the, the born-again Christians who could quote the Bible forwards and backwards and don't have a damn idea what the hell it actually says in there. And that's the way I saw this. But as I started to really get into it and really look at it, I really did get, wow, there is some deep, heavy stuff in here. You know, I hear more about alcoholism. The, the, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his eating is the great obsession of every abnormal eater. You know, I didn't do that. You know, it's 27 years in program. I, you know, I, I would be in a place where I was, you know, having drinks around me all, every night. I never went, oh, gee, I want to drink. But you know how many times I want to, you know, I want to convince myself I can have this again after the 27th time I've tried to have this thing and it's blown up in my face either sooner or later. I would keep doing that. And, and that's where I started to get some of these things. And one of the things that happened is I came back and I really, it, here's the other thing, I came back after seven years in that other program in the same, in the same physical area here, and all those people that were hip, slick, and cool like me that were going to meetings and talking on the phone all the time and, and sharing at every meeting, they're all gone. You know who's left? All those parts that were reading the big book and quoting the big book and all that, they were still all around. And, and I really... And then I started hearing, and they probably were saying it every day, and I never heard it, that this is where the real answers are. I used to have a sponsor who said, it's called the 12-step program. It's not called the 12-meeting program. It's not called the 12-phone call program. It's not called, you know, whatever. And I really started to get that this is where the changes are. And for a long time, I didn't make that. It's funny, I watch now, and I'll see people come in, and it really is great to come in and hear people talk about stuff that you, you just always had inside you thought you were the only person who felt it and to hear people doing that and you really get into that and then you, you do get into knowing people and having this. but at some point and, and I've always said the magic number seems to be five to seven years where all of a sudden at about five to seven years you either people continue on that and then they, t- they tend to sort of drift away or they sort of make that change and they realize I've got to get into this book I've got to make the changes because I've seen people who who that's, you know, that have been around for a number of years, but aren't working any steps. And here's the thing. They're saying the same damn thing today that they were saying the first day I met them. You know, oh, I broke up with my boyfriend again. I had this happen and that. Because nothing changes, nothing changes, you know. And the thing, I used to have an old sponsor who talked about, you know, he said, you boil the program, all the stuff in this book and in all this literature, you boil it down to a couple of sentences. It's a serenity prayer, Right. Accepting the things you can't change, having the courage to change the things you can't, which is a lot harder than accepting the things you can't, and then the wisdom to know the difference, you know. And the old sponsor used to, like, grab the skin on the edge of his hand and say, see the skin here, kid? This is the difference right there. Everything from the skin in, stuff you can change. Everything from the skin out, stuff you can't change. And meaning... The real thing is how I handle life, you know. And I know I'm not going to sit and quote every little part of the big book. And everybody, I think most of the people, unless you're absolutely brand new, have heard the acceptance paragraph. But I, I just, I'll, I'm going to read it again, but I also want to read a little something past it. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it's because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, 
And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. You know, I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as to what needs to be changed in me and my attitudes. And that's, you know, we've all heard that of a lot of us a lot of times. But I also love the second paragraph. This is the one that hits me for another program. Shakespeare says all the world's a stage, and all the men and women were merely players. He forgot to mention I was the chief critic. I was always able to see the flaw in every person, every situation. And I was always glad to point it out, because I know you wanted perfection just like I did. AA and acceptance has taught me there's a bit of good in the worst of us, and a bit of bad in the best of us. We're all children of God, and we all have a right to be here. When I complain about me or you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying I know better than God. Now, I, I have both of those paragraphs in my wallet. And for years I would quote that thing that says, when I complain about you or me, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. And I always heard you. I always heard the part about complaining about you, I'm complaining about. And I, I glossed over, when I'm complaining about me, I'm complaining about God's handiwork. The more I've worked the steps in the last few years, the more this whole idea of some of the ones that we I blew through, the six to seven, <laughs> you know, I blew through really quickly a number of times. I began to understand things a little differently about them, about defects and humility. You know, I, I'd always thought humility was the same as, like, humiliation or i got to walk around like Gandhi or something like that. And what I had an old sponsor say one day is, you know, humility is just having an objective view of you in the world. You're not at the top of the heap. You're not at the bottom of the heap. You're just, you know, another bozo on the bus. And it took me so long to get that because I couldn't get the concept that, you know, there was always a part of me. I had great intelligence, but no wisdom whatsoever. I heard somebody say once, intelligence, people who are intelligent learn from their mistakes, but people who are wise and have wisdom learn from other people's mistakes. And if you had told me, oh, don't, whatever you do, don't put your hand on that stove, it's hot. I'd have to go, ow, ow, you're right, it is hot. <laughs> but I had to do it, you know. And because I was so terminally unique, and I couldn't accept that if, wow, if you said that don't do this, maybe you're a smart guy, I should realize maybe I shouldn't do it too. And one of the things that happened is I just really got that I'm human, you know, and that we're all going to screw up. And there was a part of me that just, it took years to get that, that I had to accept that everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be, and that, uh, you know, it's part of what is really hell. If you have read the, uh, the paragraph about acceptance, read that whole chapter, because it is a, a great groundwork for how to go through life. Because, especially from that part on, when I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. When I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. If I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. The things that have helped me the most are that, and then just one last thing about this, because I think since we've got most of our work done, we can go another minute or two. I spent years saying I was powerless over the food. I'm powerless, I'm powerless, yes, I'm powerless, 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 and I would go and eat every couple of months or every couple of weeks. If I really believed I was powerless, I believe I'm powerless over a bullet and a gun. You know how I know? I've never put a gun to my head, and as I'm pulling the trigger, said, I'll start again on Monday. <laughs> you know, I got it, that's it. The trouble was, I had broken my abstinence and gotten my abstinence back a number of times. And no matter how much you tell yourself you're powerless over the food, when you see the empirical proof that you put down the food and picked it up and put it down again, there's a part of you that says, well, in the back of your head even, well, you really are powerful. Because look how many times you've broken your abstinence and how many times you've gotten it back. And what it took me years to get was, that was it. I had to stop seeing powerless as that and see it that, 
for me, powerless means I can no longer make food an option anymore, you know? In, in the old days, you used to say at meetings, you know, we don't eat no matter what, you know? We don't. And I heard somebody say it great, uh, in a wonderful way recently. They said, you know, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it'll always be the only option. It's always going to be the path of least resistance because if you've got a choice of going through emotional pain or going and eating, it's, it's a no-brainer. And for me today, it's a matter of, for me, the powerlessness means food has to stop being an option because that's how I can start to grow. I spent years picking up the food as the answer to my problem. It's like being a rat in a maze that goes down the wrong end and bangs his head against the end of the maze and then backs all the way out of the maze and goes down the same damn path again. You know, and what I realized that there's only one way through your problems and through emotional, uh, you, you get through it, is to get through it, you know, not to try and, and duck it. And it, sometimes it's hard, but you only have to go through that hard thing once, whereas I kept going through the same thing over and over because I kept turning to the food. Anyway, I want to thank Chase for asking me to speak, and thank you.